guest today is Sean Swarner. Sean's first goal was to crawl eight feet from the hospital bed to the bathroom. He went on to redefine impossible by climbing 29,035 feet to the top of Mount Everest with one lump. From there, he stood atop the highest point on all seven continents, skied to the South and North Poles, and completed the Hawaii Ironman. Sean has been interviewed by Steve Harvey, CBS Evening News, Fox and Friends, The Today Show, Good Morning America, The Early Show, Huffington Post, Outside the Lines, Sports Center, Washington Post, USA Today, and countless others. His numerous articles with thought leaders such as Sir Richard Branson and Archbishop Desmond Tutu put him in a category by himself. Sean is literally the first cancer survivor to ever stand on top of the world. I can't tell you how excited I was for this interview because I've always been a fan of those who were able to conquer Mount Everest and actually summit. And when I found out he was going to be a guest on my podcast, a thousand questions ran through my mind. And when we got on either side of this Zoom interview, it was just really something special. I'm a huge fan of his and my hope is to actually join him in July of 2022 to summit Mount Kilimanjaro. You're really gonna love this interview. He's a special guy, super humble, beat two different types of cancer that could have easily killed him. And he's just an amazing human being all the way around. Now sit back and enjoy this incredible conversation with this unbelievable person, Mr. Sean Swarner. Okay, today my guest is Sean Swarner. Sean is an incredible human being. You're not going to believe the things that he has done already in his life. And I am so excited for this interview. As I was talking to Sean offline, I was explaining how the, the whole thought of summoning Everest is just in itself amazing. And then the way that it's been accomplished by Sean and the adversity that he had to deal with growing up and just to, to be this person that he is. So this is exciting, not just at a sports level or at a level of just doing all these amazing feats, but just, just the human drive that this person has. So Sean, welcome to the show, man. I am so excited to have you. I appreciate it, Joe. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm excited to do this. So I like to start and, and people that listen to my podcast have hear me say this a hundred times that I like to start from the beginning. And I know you've probably told the story a million times already, but I'd like to set a foundation of who Sean is, where you came from, how you grew up, the main health factors that happened early on, how you got over that, and then become who you are today. So if you don't mind, if you could at least give us a, you know, as much of the back, the, the floor is yours. So <laughs> as much of the backstory that you want to give, uh, I welcome it all. Well, I, I, I appreciate that. And I'm, I'm <clears throat> going through my mind. And one of the things that got me through was a sense of humor, which we'll get to. But I'm, I'm assuming you probably don't want to go back, you know, 46 years where my mom and dad got together. And then nine months later, you know. <laughs> that's good. No, so then we can start right there. That's fine. <laughs> so I, I came into the world crying and screaming and kicking. And <laughs> Perfect. There we go. <laughs> I remember it like it was yesterday. Right. No, I, um, well, I guess my, I was born and raised in Ohio. It was just a, a normal Midwest kid. Yeah. I, I remember 
um, back in the day before toilet paper was hard to find, we would TP the coach's house and you know, cross country in the track coach's house. And then he installed uh, motion sensor lights. So we had to be a little bit more careful. And it, I, I just, I learned to do things I, I wasn't supposed to, but I, I never got caught because I learned how to not get caught. So I was kind of mischievous growing up, but everything was, was completely normal until I was in the eighth grade and uh, I was actually, I was going up for a layup in basketball of all things. And I came down and, and something snapped in my knee and it sounded like, um, like say for Thanksgiving, you grab the, the chicken bone and you're, you're, you're pulling on the leg, like the ripping of the tendons and, and the ligaments and everything. That's, that's kind of what my knee sounded like when I was hobbling over to the stage to, to sit down. Um, my whole body the next day swelled up so much. My, my mom and dad couldn't even recognize their own son. So they stuck me in the local hospital, uh, Willard, Ohio. And the population was 5,000. I think it's maybe 5,003 now, you know, so it's, it's not much has changed. Maybe eight stoplights or something like that. But uh, they, they stuck me in the hospital. They started treating me for pneumonia. And it's, it's very... It's very difficult to cure cancer by sucking on a nebulizer. So I wasn't getting any better. Um, but at 13, I was thinking, all right, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to soak up all this attention. You know, I, I got the cheerleaders coming in. I got the, my friends coming in. I have balloons all over my room. It was, it was fantastic. But uh, I, I, I didn't know what was going on in my body, which was advanced stage four Hodgkin's lymphoma. And I remember my parents didn't tell me that I had cancer. They told me that I had Hodgkin's. And I can only imagine what they were going through when the doctor told them that I had three months to live. And the doctors, you know, approached to my, my parents, said, your firstborn son now has an expiration date. And, and no one wants to hear that. And I've, I've heard that one of the greatest pains, pains that you can have is outliving your, your, your son or your daughter. Yeah. So I, I, I didn't want that to ever happen to my mom and dad. And I, I, I remember very vividly where I was on the, on the bottom of the, on my hands and knees in the shower, three or four months into treatment. Um, and, and because of the treatment, I was bald from head to toe. I was on my hands and knees sobbing, just absolutely weeping, pulling chunks of hair out of the, out of the drain so the water could go down. And, and I was also thinking, because I was getting ready for school that day. And that's when my hair came out it, all in that, that one time in the, in the shower. And I was thinking about what my friends may have been doing at the same time, getting ready for school, the same time I was. And they were probably worried about the, the latest hairstyles being popular. Things that, to my, in, in my mind, looking back at it now, were trivial. It, it, it meant nothing. It, because there were nights I went to bed not knowing if I was going to wake up the next morning. I mean, can, can you imagine what it feels like being terrified to close your eyes and fall asleep because you don't know if you're going to wake up? that's, that's what I had to deal with as a 13 year old. So I, I grew up with a completely different perspective. And, and thanks to the miracle of modern medicine, family support, prayer, and just an inner will to move forward. I guess I, I walked out of the hospital, a hairless, happy, bloated young man. <laughs> and I, I, I went back into being a, a quote unquote, normal teenager. I guess if, if there is anything that's that you can say is normal for a teenager, but the remission was short-lived because I was going in for checkup for the first cancer when they found a second cancer, <laughs> completely unrelated to the first one. 
And I'm, in fact, I'm the, uh, apparently I'm the only person to ever had Hodgkin's and Askin's sarcoma. And the chances of me surviving both of those illnesses is roughly the same as winning the, the lottery four times in a row with the same numbers. Incredible. <laughs> so I, I think I'm a living, breathing, walking miracle with, without a doubt. And I remember going in for a checkup for that first cancer. And they, in, in one day, they found a tumor on an x-ray. They did a needle biopsy. They removed a lymph node, put in a Hickman catheter. They cracked open my ribs, took out the tumor, put in a drainage tube and started chemotherapy in less than, less than one day. Um, and they diagnosed me with um, a type of cancer called Askin sarcoma. And that's the, basically they gave me 14 days to live. And this is at age 16? 16. So 13, the first cancer, 16, yep, the second yep. cancer. I mean, my, my whole teenage years were, were just, they were taken from me, from, from the cancer. It's crazy. I'm trying to just picture this in my brain of what happens during those years of like, there's prom, there's sports. And it sounded like you were active before 13 when you were first diagnosed. So you were definitely, you look like someone that would be athletic. Right. So you're missing yeah, it, all of that. that it's, it's a green screen. It just makes me look like <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I, I was, I was, I was incredibly athletic. And I, I think I, cause I was a swimmer. I started competitive swimming at maybe five or six years old. And I think I still have some records from the 11, 12 age group. Still holding. Still holding records. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> that is so cool undefeated in the summer league. I went to nationals numerous times. I, I loved swimming. Um, but I, I also think that's one of the reasons why I'm still alive is because I, I looked at things differently from a competitive angle and I pushed myself not to be the best, but I always pushed myself to be my best. Yeah. And that's what I did when I was going through the treatments. I, 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 I knew that when I was going through the cancer that I was going to have bad days. And I also knew I was going to have good days. So if today was a bad day, then I just, I focused on tomorrow or the next day when I was going to have a good day. And I, and when I had those good days, I was, I was truly living and learning how to be in the present moment. Yeah. That's definitely I, I, one of the gifts that would come out of what you went through, which people struggle their whole life to eliminate the noise around them and to be present, right? Because you literally only have this moment right now. So many people worry about what's on the schedule for tomorrow or the future or all of that. And some people even, and I, I'm totally guilty, dwell on the past. Oh, I should have done that different. Where would I be today if I had gone left instead of right? So it's, it's really hard to bring that in to be present and figure out how to do that. And I would assume that's, a, that's at least a good outcome of what you went through is that it forced you to live every day the most that you could knowing that it's just this, who knows what tomorrow will bring, if anything, right? A absolutely. I mean, one, one of the things that I, I do every morning before I even get out of bed, the instant I open my eyes in the morning, I, I don't, I don't, I never hit the snooze because if you constantly hit the snooze over and over and over again, you're telling yourself subconsciously, eh, I'm not excited about the day. You know, the day can wait. But if you turn off, and I actually have a, a, a smartwatch and it just vibrates so it doesn't wake up my wife. So I, 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 turn, the, I turn the alarm off <clears throat> and I lay there and I tell myself, the past is gone, there's nothing I can do about it. Tomorrow may never come. Mm -hmm. So no matter what happens today, today is the best day ever. 
And I yeah. have a choice. We all have a choice to make that day turn out however we want it to. And it starts with that morning intention. Well, so I don't want to get too far because I have so many questions. This is exciting. Like I said, I'm not going to let you go. Um, so 16, so you're, you're, you were diagnosed and you're going through all of these treatments. When do you become, and for lack of a better term, quote, normal, where they say, okay, we've, we've clobbered this thing. You're, you're in remission and your hair is growing back. You're starting to feel like average everyday 16 year old or 17 or however long it took for you to become being normal. That's a great question. And I was, I was thinking while you're talking and I honestly want to say that the answer is never. Okay. Because no one's ever had these cancers before. No one, no one knows what's going to happen to me. Yep. I, I go in once a year for a checkup and they obviously for the past, you know, 20, 30 years now, um, it's come back clean. So I, I literally see every time I go into, to, to get my blood work done and my annual checkup, I see it as I have another year to live. Mm-hmm. And I, I try to accomplish as, as much as I can in that year. So I don't think because of, of the way I'm, I'm looking at it, I don't think I'll ever have a normal life. Yeah. You know, th- th- this is my new normal and I've, I've just adapted to it. I think because of everything I've been through, I'm comfortable with being uncomfortable. So when, when, when things are going well for me, I'm like, oh, something's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. I, so that was, I was going to ask you that. I just turned 59 and I don't envy having that, that, for lack of a better term, that cloud hanging over my head, knowing that I went through something, I beat it. Mm-hmm. but there's always the chance that it'll rear its ugly head. And so people that have to live with that, that sort of pressure on them that has to take its toll. Well, it, I would, I would assume it has to take its toll depending on how you deal with it. Right. And you, with everything, when you wake up, you have the choice of saying, this is going to be a great day or it's going to be a bad day. And, and for some reason, and you can help me with this and hopefully the listeners will really uh, you know, heed your advice on this is why do we always choose the negative part? Like everyone, people just love to complain about how their job sucks or they don't have enough money or they're, you know, whatever the case might be. And if they, and I listen, I've gone through my whole life having sort of a, a, this always this negative thing, like, why didn't I ever reach this goal or that goal or this accomplishment? And I'm hard on myself about it. And I also know I didn't do the work to potentially get to some of those goals. So I'm starting at this ripe old age, admitting to myself, okay, you just didn't put in the time. But now I'm only in the past few months, I've really shifted my frame of mind to say, I literally have everything that I need. You know, I, I love my life. I, 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 I love the, the person that I live with, Joellen, my life partner. I love, I have everything that I need. And why would I just complain all the time of all the things that I don't have. And, and like our, our mutual friend, David Melter says, you literally have to get out of your own way and let the universe deliver to you the abundance that's there. And we actually get in the way of making that happen. So why don't people choose the negative? That's what I want to know. Absolutely. And, and I, I honestly, I was thinking of, of, of a couple of things. One, um, we, we, we do have a, okay, we do, yeah, we do have a choice. And 
when people start to get anxious, when people start to uh, worry about things, it's, it's because of, of two words. What if? What if this happens? What if that happens? What if this happens? What if I get cancer again? But you learn to, to realize that for me, it was a, it was a, I was counting the letters. It was a six letter word that had, that I, I allowed to have power over me. So, and recently it's, it's funny you mentioned that, you know, recently you were thinking about this, that with, cause I'm doing the same thing recently. I'm, I'm realizing that this word cancer had so much control and power over me because I allowed that to happen. And then I realized, why am I freaking out over a word? I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I completely respect cancer. It, it, can, it can be deadly and it oftentimes is, but it's the word that's making me freak out. When I go in for my, my annual checkups, it used to be smelling saline. That would make me think of, of all these traumatic things that happened in, in my past. But it, it doesn't mean it's going to happen again. So when I realize I'm, I'm asking myself, what if I'm projecting into the future and I'm giving my brain permission to go crazy and come up with any, any cockamamie imaginary thing that it could come up with. So when I, when I think of, of my, my treatments or when I, when I think of my annual checkup and I can constant, constantly ask myself, what if I realized, well, what if I get cancer? Well, what if I don't? <laughs> Perfect example. Yep. So I realized that the word itself means nothing. It's what I'm actually placing on that word and how I react to it. So when people hear cancer, they're like, oh, wow. You know, but if, is, and this is what I did. I stared myself in the mirror and I said cancer about 50 times over and over and over again. And slowly it lost its power over me. And around 35 or 40 times, I looked at myself laughing. I'm like, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> this, is, this is crazy. But it, it lessened its power over and over and over again. Just cancer, 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 cancer. You, the more you hear about it, the more you, you get rid of it. You know, the less power it has over you. Yeah. You know, and then why people are focused on, on the negative so much I think it's because unconsciously people are allowing their brains to be programmed by outside sources. If, if you look at it, most people probably, I would say 80 to 90% of, the, of the, the world, the first thing they do when they wake up, they grab their phone, they check their emails, they go on social media, whatever it might be, you know, either, either they do it before they go to the bathroom or while they're going to the bathroom. Mm -hmm. It's one of the two. <laughs> and what happens is if you're not paying attention to what you're consuming, because there's, there's that old saying of you, you are what you eat, but in all honesty, it is, you are what you consume. Yeah. So if people are constantly consuming this, this, this false information from the media and with the media, I mean, turn on the news, you don't have to watch it for more than 30 seconds to realize it's going to be depressing. It's the same stuff all over and over and over again. You have to wait through what 60 different stories to see one positive story that takes up 0.05% of, of the, the, the hour long programming. So what people are doing is they're allowing their brains to be programmed by outsource outside sources and that outside source is just constantly bombarding their brain with negativity. However, you can have, you have a choice to like wake up in the morning and have that positive affirmation. Today's the best day ever. 
I write down my, my, my daily affirmation and I write down three things that I'm, I'm going to do and three things I'm going to try to do. Or, and then at the end of the day, as opposed to turning on the news, I get my journal, I write down five things I'm grateful for. So I'm essentially bookending my day on a positive note, as opposed to, I would say most of the world, they bookend their day on their negative note. Yep. So if, if you're constantly being bombarded and allowing negative thoughts into your brain, how do you think it's, it's even possible to be positive? Yeah, it's, I don't know. It, you hit it on the head and it's just, it's, it's letting all of that stuff come in from the outside. You have a different perspective from what you went through. And, and I think people just take for granted that they're alive and healthy and have a roof over their head and all of the simple things that we just don't, we don't think about. And I don't know, it's important to take a step back and look at that. And instead you take what if, and you say, what if all of this stuff went away, yeah. where would I be? Right. Or what if all of this stuff tripled and doubled and I had even more abundance because of this, this, and this, but it seems like what you wish for, what you think about when people concentrate on the negative things, more of that stuff comes, right? It's just, right. it's just naturally happens. And I was doing it for so long. And now that I've shifted, it's just completely changed. And it's, I, I don't know if it's because it's so hard to understand that you can do that with your own brain and your own inner power to shift your mindset. And people say, oh, that's all that foo-foo stuff. And it's not. It's, I, and I think that's why it's so hard to explain and ho so hard to get people to just give it a try. Just 30 days. Just think towards the, the most positive thing you can think of. And every day, just try to eliminate as much negativity and your life will change. And it's right. just really hard for people to understand, I think. And, and, and I think that, I mean, there are some, there are a, a, a large percent of the population who think they're still positive when they're actually being negative to the brain and they don't even realize it. So a, a perfect example, um, you're walking down the street and you're telling yourself, don't trip, don't trip. You know, you're going to fall on your face. But if you turn it around from a different perspective and you tell yourself, stand tall, walk proud, stand tall, walk strong. You know, when entrepreneurs, when people go into the stock market, whatever it might be, I guarantee you, they don't think, oh, I don't want to lose money. No, that's, see, that's, that people are thinking, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm being positive. No, they want to make money. They focus on what they want. And that's exactly what happened when I was in the hospital or the story of, of that 13 year old who was 60 pounds overweight in the bottom of the shower floor. Like I mentioned before, I didn't, I didn't focus on not dying. I focused on living. Mm -hmm. I mean, can you imagine how it would have turned out if I kept telling myself, Oh, don't die, don't die, don't die. Or, or climbing Everest. Hey, um, don't fall, don't fall, don't fall. You know, don't, don't stop. And the and same thing for runners. You know, people doing anything athletic, you know, I guarantee you people who are telling themselves, don't stop, don't stop, as opposed to, hey, make it to that spot. And then when you make it there, make it to the next spot. Same thing in life. People are saying, never quit, don't quit. Your brain just hears quit. Yeah. As opposed to, hey, make it to that milestone, make it to the next milestone, make it to the next day, make it to the next day, keep pushing forward. Yeah, that's a great point. And that's what I think really people should take away from this section of what we're talking about is that even when they talk about visualization, right? It's like your, you, your body, your brain does not know whether or not you've accomplished something or not, right? So why not tell it the best story you can, right? Why not say that I, I, I'm like visualize you're on top of Everest, like just visualize it until it happens, right? It's just, so you have to tell your own, your own body the best story possible.
and I think that's it. this portion of what we're talking about should be a lesson to say your 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 body, your brain, and your body is listening. So make sure you tell it the right story. So can you take us back to you're 16, you're going through all this. What's the next phase in your life? A wild and crazy college life. Okay. What was that? <laughs> that was in Westminster College. And, and I think looking back at it, because my, my teen years and my high school years were taken from me. Um, and you're going to make seen, up for it. <laughs> have you ever seen the movie Animal House? Yeah, absolutely. There you go, man. I was Belushi. I had a wonderful time. Nice. <laughs> and I wouldn't change a thing. And I, I started off molecular bio um, thinking I was going to cure cancer by splicing genes. And I took organic chemistry and immunology. And it's, it's, it's pretty difficult to pass those classes when you don't open a book and study. So, <laughs> so I actually switched to psychology uh, because I was taking a, an introductory psych course while I was going through the immunology class. And I really found it fascinating. And then I started thinking, oh, well, maybe there's something here where I can help cancer patients and cancer survivors move on with their lives because it's not an individual disease. It, it, it affects everybody in the family. Thinking, okay, well, I have this great insight. Took the GRE, went to Jacksonville, Florida to, um, to work on my master's and my doctorate. And then some things happened. I was working four different jobs trying to go through my doctorate, which is just ridiculous. I mean, it's just focus on education and wow. So at some point I, I decided that I, I, I hadn't dealt with my own issues because I, of what I went through, I never even considered what cancer did to me and how I wanted to come out on the other end. Because in college, I, I just, I left it behind me. I didn't even bring it up. I mean, there were, I dated some girls and, and I was thinking, okay, well, how do I bring up that I'm a survivor? It's not like, you know, dinner conversation. Oh, oh, you know, how's, how's, how's your wine? How's your dinner? Oh, I had cancer. You, know, <laughs> you just can't do that. Yeah. So I was so worried about it. I didn't know what to do. I just, I just, I forgot about it. So then in grad school, I was thousands of miles away from Ohio. And it was the first time I actually stopped and looked myself in the mirror and asked myself those deep questions. You know, who are you? What do you want from life? What's your purpose? So I, I just did some deep, um, deep understanding of who I was. And then I realized, okay, I had been given a, a tremendous gift of the mind body connection and I wanted to help and give back to cancer patients in the cancer world. And that's when I did more research and more research and kept getting bigger and bigger and thinking higher and higher and like, okay, well, how about we use the biggest platform or the highest platform in, in the world to scream hope? Like, all right, great. Let's, let's go climb Everest moved to Colorado uh, just because I think the, the highest point in Florida is the top of the, the Four Seasons Hotel in Miami. <laughs> so I moved to Colorado. Rocky That's Mountains. I love <laughs> yeah, it. I don't, I don't know too many mountaineers who live in Florida. No. no. That's awesome. <laughs> so, so we moved, moved to Colorado and I trained and then literally nine months later flew over to uh, Kathmandu, Nepal and headed up Everest as the first cancer survivor to some of the highest mountain in the world. So what year was this and how old were you? Well, that was, that was 2002. I okay. actually summited May 16th at 9.32 in the morning. So 19, yeah, almost 20 years ago, 19 years ago. Um, I was 27 at the time. That's right. Yeah, and you did this with nine months of training. 
nine months of training. And when I first, well, when I first moved to Colorado, I didn't even have any support. I mean, my brother came with me. We lived out of the back of my Honda Civic and we camped in Estes Park for two months before we even got a sponsorship. Oh my gosh. So we, we were, I remember one morning we woke up, we were going to go climb, uh, I think it's um, one of the twin peaks in Estes Park. And uh, we got about two feet of snow in August. And I was thinking to myself, because we were living in the, in the car and camping, it's like, what the hell am I doing here? <laughs> what did I get myself into? My, my office was the library and a payphone bank. So I was calling corporations like Gore-Tex, you know, and Cabela's in the North Face, saying, hey, I'm a two-time cancer survivor with one lung, and I'm going to go climb Mount Everest in, in 10 months. I need, I need your help. And 99 doors closed in my face. Really? That's yeah. so surprising that, that your story is so unique that that wouldn't have triggered people to say yes more often. I, but, I just, they, but they didn't think it was even possible. Uh, I guess. They thought wow. it was physiologically impossible to do that with half your lung capacity. So they, like, like I said, nine out of 10 people, I mean, Hey, you know, this is my story. Click. And they thought it was a joke. So well, I, I actually have both lungs. Okay. There's so much scar tissue from the radiation treatment. There's really no oxygen transfer. Ah, uh, yeah. So, so there wasn't it, removed. It was uh, just, right. it's just calloused or I, I don't know if that's the right term, but that's scar perfect, tissue. perfect term. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And this, that was from, you know, the age 16 when a lot of the chemo and radiation was done. That's when it happened. Exactly. Did you have it? Did you also have chemo and radiation at 13? I had chemo the first time and okay. chemo and radiation the second time. Okay. And so it just affected the one lung in the sense that it just created just the scar tissue over it right. where it wasn't. So right. it, it, it doesn't really work at all. Not, not really. In fact, um, in January, I had uh, a little scare. They, th they think it's a, um, a long-term side effect from the radiation where I had some spots on my back removed. And now I have another, another scar that's probably about six inches long where they had to go remove that. But if, if that's all I have to do, you know, the first cancer, six, the second cancer, 16, 17, and then now 46 years old, cut it out. I'm, I'm good. Yeah. You know? Okay. So we are, you said, what was the date again? Um, May 16th. May 16th of 2002. Yeah. And you were 27 years old. Okay. And so you trained nine months before you decided, you said, I'm going to go do this. So you, you set aside nine months to get ready for this. Correct. Okay. So is the training, uh, is the training, the stuff that I saw in some of the videos where you're, you're pulling a Jeep behind you and, and whatever you were pull tires up a hill and, and like how did you figure out how to train for such a thing so that was actually um when i when i went to the north pole a couple of years ago but for training going up to up everest um there's longs longs peak which is 18 miles round trip and it's it's 14,256 feet and i eventually worked my way up to climbing that peak once a week with 100 pounds of rocks in my backpack so I would train myself and I'll go up onto that peak and into the Rocky Mountain National Park in a bad day, thinking that a bad day on Long's Peak was probably better than a good day on Everest. Mm -hmm. and, and what I do with training for, for anything, like the North Pole, the, the Hawaii Ironman, when I did that, I train harder than I think the event, actual event is going to be for two reasons. I get my body in shape, my mind in shape, but also 
I'm, I'm thankful I don't have to train anymore and I'm more excited about the actual event. Right. Wow. That's crazy. Well, so what is a normal, when you're, when you're training for something like that, what, what would be a normal day in Sean's life? What time do you get up? What kind of stuff do you eat? What, like, I, I can't even fathom <laughs> something like this. I just got done skiing in Snowbird in Utah. I got home last night. I went with the old, my oldest friend. We went from elementary and junior high and high school and oh, our wow. families were friends and our, his father was my dentist. And so he said, I'm going to Snowbird spring skiing. I haven't been skiing in 25 plus years. Oh, wow. And he's like, come on, let's go. And I was a good skier a long time ago. And uh, yeah, I just can't imagine what it would take. My legs were shot. So <laughs> what does it take? What's Sean's uh, the day in, in, a, in the life of, of what you do? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to challenge you again, then. What are you doing July 24th to August 7th? I saw that and I was like, God, I, oh, I want to do that. <laughs> so, so explain. I, so since you're talking about it, explain what it is before we talk about your, your daily routine. So well, explain. Uh, yeah, that would lead into it. Because every, every year I take a group up Kilimanjaro. That's as a fundraiser for cancer charity. And what we do is we actually, we pay for a survivor's trip. And then it's the responsibility of that survivor to raise funds for next year's survivor, kind of oh, pay, wow. paying it forward. Anyone can go. We just wow. fund a survivor's trip. And this year we actually have enough uh, funds to send two survivors. So I'm hoping with those two survivors, there isn't, they raise enough funds to take three in 2022 and then maybe five in 2023 and so forth up to, I'd love to take 15 people, uh, 15 survivors for free every year. Wow. You know, all costs covered. Um, <clears throat> but for Kilimanjaro, Let's say I would, I would wake up um, and about four miles from here, we have a set of stairs that are pretty steep and they're 200. And I, I live at, uh, I want to say 60, 64, 6,500 feet. Okay. So I'm already in altitude, which helps a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, wake up in the morning before sunrise and eventually I will do that, that set of stairs um, 10 to 15 times with about 70 or 80 pounds of rocks in my backpack. So you're talking what two thousand, maybe maybe three, four thousand steps, you know, up and down. And how many stairs are there in the Empire State Building? I think there's one thousand something. So less yeah, than I, what I do. Right. Wow. <laughs> then come back, um, wake my wife up. We'll do some yoga, uh, eat breakfast, uh, come here, do do some work on my laptop, um, and then I'll probably either do depending on the day, either rowing, um, lifting, or running. And then on the weekends, go out and do a 14 or something like that. And a 14 is a 14,000 foot peak. But I also have a sponsorship through a company called Hypoxico, where there's this machine, I call it R2D2, like R2, Mm -hmm. because it's it's tiny and it actually filters out oxygen to simulate altitude. So I'll I'll do um, the yoga, I'll do the rowing machine, or, and I'm doing this because it's it's a mask. (laughs) (laughs) Right. For those of you who are listening, he's putting his hand over his face. <laughs> Randomly. That's, that's, that's what I do when I work out. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, I, uh, I'll, I'll do those workouts at home on a mask that's connected to this machine. And I'll end up doing these workouts at 19,000 feet. Wow. So uh, what I'm doing is I'm pre-acclimatizing my body because uh, I, I have to make up for the lack of my right lung. Um, because when you get into altitude, there's less oxygen, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's spread out, it's spread out further. And yep. when you get to like, if we left, if we went from here to the top of Everest, we'd be dead in five minutes. 
just because of the lack of oxygen. So right. I, I, try to, I try to pre-acclimatize myself. And when we go to Kilimanjaro, um, I, I tell people my training schedule and they're like, oh, I could never do that. I'm like, well, remember you're training for yourself. I'm training for me and 10 other people. Right. So this, if you're interested, this will be my 21st summit of Kilimanjaro. That's incredible. In regards to what you eat, are, are you like a, a very strict, like is everything that you do very strict and regimented? Not, not everything. I mean, I, I, I give myself some leniency. Sugar during the week, I, I don't do on the weekends. Okay. Um, on Easter, yeah, I have those little malt balls, you know, <laughs> Easter egg malt balls. <laughs> Love those things. But for the most part, I mean, no sugar. Um, let's see, what did I have? Just for lunch, uh, my wife made a salad. We had some chick, like a chicken, homemade chicken salad. Um, we're very conscious of what we eat. We stay away from the sugars. No, and, and that means, you know, no white pasta, no white bread. Um, I love, I've always loved broccoli. They just eat healthy. Right. Like every once in a while, I'll have a burger or a steak, but, you know, maybe once a month. Beer, um, a glass of wine, no? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I like beer. I actually, I brew beer at home, too. Oh, okay, cool. And yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's great, because when I travel, you know, I make the beer. I come back two weeks later. I'm like, ah, oh, beer. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. So were you afraid going to Everest? Like, I, I can't, I can't even imagine it. I, I'm telling you to sit here and talk with you about this. I, I've watched, like we've talked about before we, we actually started recording, watch the shows, the different movies or documentaries about it. And, you know, the getting frostbite and people getting pneumonia and their, you know, their system, their body shutting down. And, you know, they're, they're having to have their tip of their, like my nose is red right now from being sunburned and windburned from snowbird. And I'm like, I, I don't, I can't even fathom all the things that must go through your brain. And then watching where you cross over on that, uh, I don't even know what it's called. You think I'd know after watching some, yeah, yeah the correct, with the ones with the, the ladders, right? I don't know how many of those you have to cross. And uh, I just, I don't know. And then the spots where, I, mean, I don't even know if this is something people point out on the way up or on the way down, but that's where we had to leave so-and-so and like all those things going through your brain and you don't want to be the weak link in the chain. Something happens to you. And then all of a sudden other people have to descend. Like, I don't even know how that works. So, I mean, arriving at base camp must've been just like incredible and scary as hell. I'd have been like, <laughs> Oh my gosh. There's no turning back. Here it is, base camp. And I'm and I said I'm gonna do this. I, I think for me, I obviously yes, I was focused on the summit. I, I wanted to get to the top, like everybody else who goes over there. But I, I think I was more focused on enjoying the whole process because literally when I got to base camp, every step outside of base camp was my personal record for altitude. Mm -hmm. I had never been any higher than base camp. But so every step was higher than I'd ever been. So what, I, is, I, what is base camp at? 17,600 feet. Okay. And you were, and you're saying this machine you used trained you at 19,000. But I didn't, I didn't have that machine before oh. I went to base camp. Uh -uh. Wow. So the highest I had ever been was just around, just below 14,500 feet, which is the highest mountain here in Colorado. You know, Mount Elbert. Wow. And when I got to the summit of Everest, it, I mean, it was double the whatever the highest point I'd ever been at. Mm -hmm. But I, I knew that 
I, I was so focused on, you know, you're asking about being afraid. There were times that those little negative seeds got planted in my brain, but I, I didn't water them. You know, I, I didn't let them grow. And I was very mindful and very aware of when those thoughts came in my brain. Because looking back at this, the same analogy of that young boy on the shower floor, I focused on living as opposed to not dying. And when I when I was crossing the the ladders on on the, uh, the going across the crevasses, I wasn't focused on hey don't fall in the crevasse. I was focused on making it to the next side. Right. And when we passed the dead bodies, I stepped over a number of dead bodies. I just I, I tried to not ask myself the question. I did this when I got back down. Why did he die and why wouldn't I? You know what's the difference? luck why why would i why would i be worthy and he wouldn't be you know but it's 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 like anything in life you, you you just don't know sometimes why did i get cancer i don't know it's a whole question you know why me why me well the fact of the matter is it was me so deal with it yeah you know why not me yeah i've had this conversation with other people on the podcast who have gone through some adversity and i i you know i i feel like that adversity has been given fortunately or unfortunately, however you want to look at it, because the outcomes of things that you've learned through what you've gone through have created this person, this mental strength and someone who is very happy day to day where other people just no matter, they could be having the most amazing life and they still complain. But I feel like, you know, the adversity has been given to people with strength. And I'm not sure if that's true. It's something I made up in my own brain because I think I'm such a wimp that if I cut my finger, I start crying. Like, I don't know how I would deal with what you've gone through, you know, what other people around me have gone through. Um, so that's, that's my own little story. I tell myself, so he, he just didn't choose me because he knew I couldn't handle it. So, <laughs> but, but you never know what you can handle until you're put in that situation. Right. And people always say, say things like that all the time. I don't, my God, I, I have no idea what I would do if I was ever in your situation. You, you don't know. Yeah. And you'd be amazed at how much you can actually handle when you are in that situation. Yeah, that's incredible. Okay, so you're at base camp. And how many are you in? I don't know how you travel, if there's 12 or 15 or whatever the number is. How many are there with you going up? So as you probably know, a normal Everest expedition could, I mean, it could, it could be 20, 30 people. Okay. A number of cooks, of sirdars, um, Sherpas, you name it, clients. I had my brother at base camp, a cook at base camp, two Sherpas and me. And that was it. Okay. We were, I say, so yeah, we, we, we were on a shoestring budget, but we didn't even have shoelaces. So we, we didn't. Have <laughs> so did I you did. end up ever getting sponsorship before you left? I did. And okay, one good. Of them, one of them was Gore Tex, one was Cabela's. And okay. believe it or not, I didn't even have a summit suit um, a week before I was supposed to go up for the top. And just by crazy luck, um, and I know it's not luck, it was by the big guy upstairs, mm -hmm. but the North Face came in with my, my summit suit. And it, it actually said Sean Swarner Everest Base Camp on the box. And it, it got to me. Wow. That's crazy. 
two, like two or three days before I was supposed to go up to the summit, my summit suit came in. That is nuts. Wow. <laughs> All right. So when you start out, how long does it, how long should it take you or how long is like the most that you can spend up that high? Like, is there a period of time that you have to summit? And I know it's due to weather too, right? You have to sometimes just go, we can't make the attempt today. The weather's just not good enough. So what did it end up taking you from base camp to, to summiting Everest? So a, a lot of people don't understand that when you get there, you, you don't go from base camp and go up to camp one, spend a couple of days there, go up to camp two, spend a couple of days there, camp three, camp four, same thing. And then from the south side, we actually, there are four camps. And then with base camp, there are five. Okay. So we arrived at base camp April 8th and I summited May 16th. Wow. So almost a month and a half. The whole time we're going from base camp up higher, establishing different camps and then coming back down. So that, that does two things. We go up with a full backpack, drop off stuff, and then go back with an empty backpack. Go back up with a full pack, drop stuff off, go back down. So like I said, it does two things. It actually transports the gear and material that we need to each camp, food, gear, whatever. But it also is getting our body adjusted to the altitude. Okay. So then we would go up and down, up and down, up and down. After we established three and then four, when when you get to camp four, you, you're you're before you get to camp four, you pay attention to the weather and there's a weather window and because everybody's seen that, that quintessential picture of Everest with the snow plume blowing yep. off the top. Yep. That's because that's because the summit's puncturing the jet stream. You know, the jet ah. stream pummels the summit, you know, uh -huh. 200, 300 miles an hour. So it's impossible to climb on that. So what happens is pre-monsoon season, there's a high pressure system that pushes the jet stream north. And that's when people sneak up on top of Everest and come back down. So you, you, you see on, on um, I guess it's, you don't look on a map, but meteorologists know, and they give you a weather window. Like it's usually mid-May. For us, it was supposed to be May 15th where the weather window was good. But for whatever reason, I was at May on May 14th when we were supposed to move to May 15th and go up for the summit. I was at camp three and I, I was suffering a mild form of cerebral edema, which is altitude induced swelling of the brain. And I couldn't move. So every single other expedition who was on the same schedule as us went from camp three, moved to camp four and went for the summit that night. <clears throat> the next morning, the winds were howling. They came down, they all retreated and they lost their opportunity to climb. I've, I slept on oxygen that day. The next morning, we went up to Camp 4, summited on May 16th, a day later, and there was just a slight breeze on the top. We spent about 30 minutes up there to 45 minutes, which is unheard of. Who's medically trained to tell you what's wrong with you? Or do you just have to know? Like, there's no yeah. one. It's like in your own little group, it's you just have to know what's right or wrong with you and how to fix it. In, in my group, yeah. I mean, in, in other expeditions, there are expedition doctors, you know, everybody. There were, um, we made friends with some people from Brown University who were doing a study up there. And it was, it was actually, it's really funny. They were doing a study on how the altitude affects um, uh, the brain. And they gave me this book and I became a volunteer to help with the study. And I was at camp three when I was acclimatizing and not going up for the summit, but just sleeping at camp three and I was gonna come back down the mountain. Um, it's like this little Rolodex thing. Like it's, it's like the size of an index card and you flip it back. And on the front of it, 
you're supposed to pick out which object was was different, which which one didn't belong. And it was like a, a small triangle, a large triangle, um, a medium-sized triangle, and a pentagon or something like that, right? right. And so I, and each are, each are different. So big, medium, small, square, and a circle. You know, you pick out the circle. But it was funny. So I get up to camp three and I'm radioing down to them. All right, you guys ready to go? Yeah, we're good. So I flip it over and I'm thinking, I'm going to have some fun with this. Right. So I go, page one, the penguin. <laughs> page two, the house. Page three, the dog. And keep in mind, they're all geometric shapes. Mm -hmm. So all right, take, so, <laughs> <laughs> so you're naming off animals. Okay. Oh, perfect. <laughs> so I, I take my thumb off the microphone, and there's a long silence. That's awesome. And all of a sudden, Sean, are you feeling okay? Right. Like, yeah, why? What's going on? There, there are no animals. <laughs> that is so funny. Oh, my gosh. Oh, they were probably like, oh, we got to get a helicopter up there. They, they, were, they were thinking, oh, we need to get emergency up there and get him down off the mountain. <laughs> that is so funny. Oh, my gosh. So is it true that it gets backed up up there when people are trying to summit during a certain it, season? It is now. When I was there, it wasn't as bad. Okay. Um, and also, a few years ago, there was a big earthquake. And there used to be a section called the Hillary Step. Yeah, I remember and here. Yeah. So that, that it used to be a chunk of rock that used to hang out. And literally, if you took six inches off to your left side, you would plummet a mile and a half straight down. And there was that section where only one person could go up or one person could go down at a time. And that's where the bottleneck usually was. Mm -hmm. So with the earthquake, what I've heard is that there's no longer a Hillary step. It's more like a Hillary slope now because that giant rock has been dislodged. Okay. But from what the, obviously you, you saw a picture from a couple of years ago that just that long queue of people, apparently it's getting a little out of control. Yeah, that's crazy. Would you ever do it again? Do you ever care about doing it again? Um, well, as is my family or my wife going to hear this? this yeah, right. <laughs> I don't know if, if it calms down and it, it becomes less popular. I honestly would, I would like to attempt it again without oxygen to see if it's possible to climb Everest with one lung and no, no supplemental oxygen. Who was the guy that did it the, with no, nothing. Reinhold Messner. He's climbed. Yeah. And then there's also a guy named Ed Visters who climbed the 8,000 meter peaks. So it's been, it's been done numerous times, but the first person who did it was Messner. Okay. I believe. God, no oxygen. It just, all right. Yeah. I don't want to get you in trouble with your wife. So we'll just, <laughs> we'll not talk about it anymore. Okay. I, we're, I'm telling you, I can sit here and talk to you forever and I want to respect your time. I don't want to run too far over. So besides Everest, you've done every, the, the tallest peak on every continent at this point. Is that true? Correct. That's, that's called the seven summits. Yep. Okay. And then Along with that, you have this series of books that you're doing. Can you explain um, what that's about, what people find when they get each one of those books? Oh, sure. Yeah, it's actually, it's, it's in the um, infant stages right now, but it's called The Seven Summits to Success. And uh, I just signed an, uh, an agreement with a publishing company. We're, produce, we're publishing the first one, which is uh, Conquering Your Everest, where it helps people bring them kind of into my life and understand how I've done what I've done, not just what I've done, what I've done. Mm -hmm. 
not what I've done, what I've done, not what I've done, <laughs> but how I've done what I've done. Yep. And uh, it, it's also, it, it's very similar to what's, what I, I just, I put together called the Summit Challenge, which is an online series of individual modules, seven different modules, walking people through utilizing their own personal core values to accomplish things uh, like self-actualization. Uh, and, and at the end, they, they essentially find their purpose. And it, it came from the concept and the idea where after a keynote presentation, so many people would come up and say, that's a great story, but a handful would say, that's a great story. And then followed up with a question, but how did you do it? And then looking at Kilimanjaro again, um, the average success rate on the mountain is roughly 48%, meaning 52 people out of 100 don't even make it to the top. And like I said, this, this July will be my 21st summit with groups. And our groups are at 98% success rate, double that of the average. So I was thinking, okay, well, what's, what's the difference? And the difference is I've been subconsciously um, imparting what I've learned going through the cancers because my first goal was to crawl eight feet from the hospital bed to the bathroom. And then I ended up climbing 29,000 feet to the top of the world. So all those little things, those little insights that I've learned, I've been imparting on people in, in, in my groups. So we do something every day that's different to help people get up there. And the main, the main understanding that they get is understanding what their personal core values are. Because once you hold fast to your personal core values and you have uh, an understanding of a, of a deeper purpose, you know, nothing's going to get in your way. Right. So, and that kind of brings us back to when you left college and you decided that, you know, you're, you're camping with your brother and then you decide you're going to do this thing to Everest, right? Was that the beginning of this, this portion of Sean's life where, you're going to do these things, but now there's a, an underlying, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? There's an underlying mission, which is you're, you're, you're doing this, I guess, because you like to challenge yourself. Obviously you, you just want to, you're so happy with the fact that you have been given this chance with, with what happened to you, you're going to make the most of it. So here I am. Um, Sean Swarner, I am so grateful that I went through two different types of cancer that easily either one of them could have killed me. One of them ruined one of my lungs. I'm still living. Not only that, but I'm going to make the most of every day. So you go to Everest, you do this, you accomplish that. And then you say, okay, that, that's it. You know, that's it. You went for the biggest thing on your first run. You didn't even start out small. You're just like, screw it. I'm going to Everest. And then after that, all these other things would be cakewalks. And I'm sure they're not. But then you, you did all seven summits. And now, though, is that the underlying mission is that you are, you are the voice of cancer survivors. And, and what you do, and I don't want to put any words in your mouth, so stop me at any moment. But is it like you're doing this to, to, to provide hope for them to say, Listen, I, I not only beat it twice, but I am living at the highest level of accomplishment and, and, and um, I don't know what, there's so many words I can think of uh, that you just, you want them to all think the same way. Just keep pushing forward 
get the most out of life. And, and I'm, I'm here to support you and look at me. I've done it. I'm not just doing words uh, from a stage. I've literally gone out and done this. So I want you to, to be on this journey with me, both mentally, physically, if you can. Does that make sense? Or did I just destroy it? No, absolutely. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't personally profess that I am the voice of, of survivors. If, if others want to think that, that that's great, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't declare myself that. Um, but I, I have found a deeper purpose and it, it did start with Everest because when I made it to the summit, I had a flag that had names of people touched by cancer on it. Yeah. I saw that. Yep. And that was always folded up in my chest pocket, uh, close to my heart as a constant reminder of my goals and, and my inspiration. And I, I planted a flag on the top of Everest. I planted a flag on the, the seven summits, the highest mountain of every continent. And I also planted a flag at the South Pole and most recently at the North Pole. And that I think it, it initially started with the concept of, of, I don't wanna say infiltrating the cancer community, but getting there and, and showing them exactly what you said, you know, being up on stage and saying, hey, I, I'm not just talking the talk, I'm walking it as well. I know what it's like being in your situation. I know what it's like to have no hope, but I also know what it's like on the other side. And I also know what it's like to scream from the rooftops that there's, there's a tremendous life after, after cancer and it can be a beautiful life. So a lot of people who, and like I said, it started off with cancer, but now it's, it's reached out to anybody who's going through anything traumatic, which this with the state of the world, it's, it's everybody now. So with, with any uncertainty, you can use that, with, especially with my cancer, it, it wasn't the, the end, it was the beginning. So what the world's going through right now, it's not necessarily the end. It's not uncertainty. How we come out of this on the other side is entirely up to us, and it's our choice. And we can use all the trials and tribulations and turn that into triumphant success if we want. It is all based on our own perspectives. So you come off of Everest, and then does your life now become this person who is going to continue to push themselves for, because you obviously want to live this amazing life and you don't, you just, you love the adventure. You love the thrill of the accomplishment. I'm sure all of that stuff that any of us would love. Like I went skiing for three days over 25 years. I'm glad I'm still alive sitting here talking <laughs> to you. So <laughs> trust me, I was with the guy, like you were talking about walking down the sidewalk and say, don't trip, don't trip. I was like, you're 59, you break a bone now, you're screwed, you break a bone now, and I'm like going over these moguls going, oh my gosh, why am I here? How did you survive, how does someone like that survive financially? How do you survive financially that you now did that? Does that start to bring in sponsorships and endorsements and book deals and speaking deals? Is it just the snowball that happens? And, and how do you decide that this is the path you know, your life is going to take? You, you would think so. And I've, I've been approached by numerous corporations where the conversation went something like uh, me telling them, well, I, I really can't use your product up in the mountains and, and doing what I do. They say, okay, well, just take the money we're going to give you, buy what you really use, but endorse our product. So if I went, if I went down that path, yeah. absolutely, I'd, I, I would be living the high life. 
Right. But because I'm a moral and ethical person, I think yeah. it's, it's not nearly what you probably think it, it, it is. Right. Um, I don't have people banging down my door for a movie. I don't have people banging down my door for a book. And I think it's because most of the media that we see on television is, is paid for media. And every time I reach out to a, a production company or a marketing company or a PR company, they're, they're usually their first question is, well, what's your budget? Like, okay, well, how about the story? How about helping people? Because, right. you know, every, like I said, every morning I, I write an affirmation down. In fact, um, where was it? Just, yeah, yesterday was I will give more than I receive. I will create more than I consume. And I think most people who don't understand that think that you're living in a state of lack. And, and maybe I am. You know, but I'm also incredibly grateful for everything I have. And do I want my story out there? Absolutely. But I don't need to make millions and millions of dollars on it. You know, what I, what I want to do is take those millions and millions of dollars and take cancer survivors up Kilimanjaro every year. Right. I'd love to do that three or four times a year. Right. So I'm always looking for people who can, who can jump in here and help me out and share my story with others to give back to help people and, and help them believe in themselves and help them find their purpose, their, their inner drive, their inner meaning. Is, uh, this is going to sound so stupid, so forgive me. So when you do this, <laughs> this trek up Kilimanjaro, you do it in July, right? Yeah, yeah. People should arrive at uh, Kilimanjaro International Airport July 24th. Okay, is it cold up there? Yeah, it depends. That's a, it's not a stupid question. Really? But I thought you were going to be like, me, yeah, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's however many thousand feet. No. What do you think, Joe? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that would be like me asking you, hey, what's it like in uh, Snowbird? What's it going to be like in Snowbird July 24th, 2023? I mean, you, you right. have a rough estimate, you know? Right. So in going up Kilimanjaro, it's one of the most beautiful mountains I've been on because you go through so many different climactic zones getting up there. You start off in an African rainforest where it can be a torrential downpour. It's always green, but it can be a torrential downpour or it can be sunny and the, the sun kind of filters through the canopy. You know, and you'll see these little streams of light coming through the canopy, which is beautiful. Um, and then the next day, it's, it's, it could be sunny or rainy, but it goes through so many different zones you just have to be prepared for each one. Summit night, however, yes, it's, it's tremendously cold. Um, it can be zero degrees or maybe even minus 10, but with the right gear, you're, you're going to be fine. I mean, there's, there's, uh, there's no such thing as bad weather, just bad gear. Well, here's a good question. Then if someone was to go on this, is, uh, how, how do they get that gear? Do they have to buy all that stuff? You can, you can purchase it or you can rent it over there. You know, I, I, I've used the same group of people for the past, like I said, 18 summits. Um, and if, if you're like, if you're never going to use a zero degree sleeping bag again in your life, just rent it for 30 bucks, right? You know, don't spend 300 or $400 to buy one. Or if you do buy one and you're never going to use it again, give it to my friends, the Sherpas of the Porters who use it all the time. Right. So basically somebody going on this could, when they arrive there, get everything they need to make it happen. Right. Ex well, except for your boots and your underwear, you probably don't want to rent any underwear. <laughs> <laughs> Point well taken. Okay. <laughs> All right. So I want to ask you about the Big Hill Challenge. So great. The Big Hill Challenge is actually an abridged version of the Summit Challenge. So Summit Challenge is this really in-depth 
um, 21 week program where you take micro challenges and utilize something that you learn and just incorporate it into your daily life. The big hill challenge is going to be a three week challenge where I take a group of a hundred people at a time and work them through three weeks of little micro challenges to help them along. Got it. Okay. Based on, and they're both based on understanding and utilizing your personal core values. Perfect. And these can be found on your website. Yeah, you can go to the summitchallenge.com. Okay. Eventually, you can go to the bighillchallenge.com. Okay, cool. BeyondShawnSwarner.com. Okay, great. Because I'll put all of this in the show notes and, and everything else. I wrote this question down because I wanted to make it clear that besides your website, SeanSwarner.com, you have the cancerclimber.org site. Correct. Can, can, you explain, can you explain that site to me and what the, the goal of that site is? Sure. So Cancer Climber, um, cancerclimber.org is actually the organization my brother and I founded that funds trips for cancer survivors to Kilimanjaro every year. Okay. And eventually, if we raise, um, my goal is to raise about $2 million to have a mobile camp for kids with cancer. Wow. Yeah, That's because you, I mean, there, there are camps all over the country, all over the world, yep. but oftentimes you can't get the survivor or you can't get the patient to the camp because of their compromised immune system. So I thought, well, what if there's a semi-truck that brings the camp to the kids? Hmm. That's interesting. That's really cool. And the reason I asked about Kilimanjaro being cold is because Joelle and my, my better half of 20 some years um, survived breast cancer. Um, it was lymph node sort of stuff. So it was taken out and, uh, um, and I'd be like, God, but she hates the cold. Like she, I, it'd be so cold to do something like this with her. She just literally, I mean, I don't know if she would go the last section to the summit because her and cold do not mix. She's so happy here in Arizona and she never complains about the heat. So that's my, the only reason I asked that. So my, my wife was born and raised in Puerto Rico. Okay. 40, 40 years of her life. And she went with me. Did she? She did. She hated the last night, but she's so happy she did it. So it's really just the one night that's the yeah. coldest. So it's one night out of how long does it take to get from where you start out in the rainforest to the, the summit? So the, the whole trip itself is a seven day trip up and down the mountain. We summit on the morning of the sixth. We leave the evening of the sixth. And then after we come off the mountain, we actually go, we fly into the Serengeti and do a four day safari through the Serengeti. Wow. And when you're staying on the way up to the summit, or is it just like camps right there? Right oh, there. so it's, that's it. There it <laughs> is. It's it. right. There. So the people that are listening to this on the podcast, you'll have to go look at the YouTube video later, but <laughs> he's showing me the actual right tents and all right. And you, is everybody carrying their own tent? No, I actually, because I've been there so many times, we pay two quarters per person to haul your gear up. And all you have to worry about is your day pack, um, some water, snacks, a rain shell, your camera, um, sunscreen, hat, stuff like that. Um, I, I don't want anybody carrying anything more than, say, 25, 30 pounds up the mountain. Um, but the, so the porters will actually get, they'll, they'll leave after we leave camp. They'll pass us on the way. They'll get to the next camp before us, set up camp for us. We'll have a dining tent. We'll have a cook tent. We'll have all of our personal tents ready to go. All you have to do is just find your bag, your quarter bag, get your sleeping bag, your sleeping pad, set up your, your inside of your tent and go to the, the dining tent to have some dinner. That is crazy. And they pass you after you've already left. They're, uh, they're unbelievable. I mean, these guys are just insane. 
That's pound, pound for pound, they have to be some of the strongest people on earth. That's just insane, uh, man. Okay, is there anything that I missed? Because uh, I, I literally, I've gone 15 minutes over. I could go another two hours over. I, it's just like every summit I would want to talk about, and I would want to talk about any of the super, super unique things that had happened. But um, again, I, I'm, I'm sorry I went over because I hate not respecting someone's time when we said an hour, but I've been so waiting for this conversation. You can't imagine. So is there anything that I missed that you want to talk about, mention? Um, what can you can you mention what the cost is to do the uh, the trip to Kilimanjaro? Do you have sure. Yeah, it's it's seventy two hundred bucks, and that includes the hotel, that includes the food, that includes the seven days on the mountain, that includes the safari, that includes the flight to the safari, that includes the safari lodges, that includes everything except for your international airfare tips and your personal items. So you basically get there and home on your own dime. But yep. when you're when you when you land, everything else is covered except for tips and and anything you might want to buy somewhere. Like, like bottle of wine, beer, bottle of water, whatever. Yeah, yep. exactly. Souvenirs, stuff like that. Got it. But everything else, because all the food that you're the porters are carrying and cooking is yeah, all so seventy two hundred dollars per person. And then how does somebody sponsor a cancer survivor? If they, they just go to cancerclimber.org and there's a place there that they can do that? There, there will be. Right now it's on Facebook. Um, okay. and I, can, I can send you the link because what we do is with the fundraiser, we add people's like you're you're just mentioning a certain someone who yep. <laughs> like the yep. cold. Yeah. We add names of people touched by cancer on a flag that we take up. And that's one of the main fundraisers that we have. And it's on a flag of hope. And um if if you if you want to see a replica of that, it's actually so there's there's a film on Amazon called True North, okay. Sean Corner story. It's about my expedition to the North Pole, and what we take up to the top of Kilimanjaro is actually a replica of what I took to the North Pole, and we we handwrite names of people touched by cancer as we're going up the mountain. So everybody and everybody gets a chance to carry it. It gives everyone a purpose. And I think that might be one of the reasons why we have a 98% success rate. Wow, that's great. And how many people usually go, or do you cap it at something uh, for I, this? I don't, yeah, I don't want it to be more than 15 people because I've, I've taken a friend of mine, he had a group and he couldn't go one year. He had 30 people on the, on the trip and it was just, it was, it's weird. Everybody reverts like they're back in high school. You know, they, they form certain cliques. I want to be with this group. I want to be with this. But you know what? With 15 people, that's perfect. You can, you can, you can mingle. You can network. You can talk to people. You can get different stories. Um, it, it's it's much it's much more intimate that way, and that's what I really like. Very cool. Uh, is your wife going again? She actually with with her. She has an online company called OriginsAccessories.com, where it's um, women's accessories, and for each sale a portion that goes back to support an orphanage near the base of Kilimanjaro. Oh, cool. So she's thinking, and it, yeah, last year she didn't go, but the year before when she climbed, um, the two years ago and then last year, she had enough funds to support a hundred orphans at the Hope Orphanage for an entire year with food. That's incredible. So she wants to go back again this year, not go up the mountain, but- Oh, she, she doesn't. No, no, not, not anymore. She's done. <laughs> but she, she wants to help the orphanage while, while I'm taking people up the mountain. That's awesome. Very cool. 
Okay, my friend, this has been something really, really special for me. I can't even explain. And uh, I really appreciate your time. I'm going to make sure I have everything in the show notes and we'll get this out and spread the word. And uh, man, I'd love to have you back at another time to talk about more and more of this. But this, this was really special to me. I appreciate it. Oh, my, my pleasure. And you're, you know, you're worried about going over time. I, I was once giving a presentation for a, a bunch of type A personalities uh, at a luncheon. And the lady warned me, she's like, at, at, you know, when, when we hit, let's say whatever it was, one o'clock, you'll see some people getting up to leave because they have to go back. They feel like they have to go back to work. And I was wrapping up. I had maybe five minutes left and I saw maybe four or five people stand up, start walking out. And I literally stopped what I was doing. And I said, you know what? At one point in my life, I was given 14 days to live. What's an extra five minutes of your time? Yeah, so true. But, you know, I, I'm like, you know, maybe you're going to get your hair cut or something. And I don't want to hold you. <laughs> Wait, what are you saying? <laughs> no, <look up. laughs> All right. Well, thanks, man. I really appreciate it. Um, let's stay in touch. Anything I can do to help, just let me know. As soon as I get this all scheduled and done, I'll let you know when it's going to be posted. And then we'll just go from there. But I really appreciate your time. You're incredible. Uh, I appreciate that, Joe. Thank you very much. Very grateful for your time and the platform to, to share my story. Absolutely, man. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I want to thank you for listening to my podcast. I know you have many options to listen to various podcasts and I'm honored that you chose to listen to mine. I would love it if you would rate my podcast five stars and write a nice review. It really helps to bring up the rankings of the podcast to other listeners. Once again, thank you so much for listening to The Joe Costello Show. I appreciate you very much.